in severe persecutions. And so in light of this truth, when they knew that this was going to be the case, their initial first response was to pray. And in chapter 4, in verse 31, we see the result of that prayer. The Bible says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So filled with the Holy Spirit, speak about the person of Christ. This is a pattern that we see take place over and over again in the book of Acts, especially over the first four chapters. And when, in fact, what we find is we see that it happened in the, on the day of Pentecost. It happened when Peter and John were arrested and they stood before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. And now we see it happen again in the last section of scriptures that close out chapter four. In chapter four and verse uh, 33, Immediately after the people gathered to pray, the Bible says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But speaking words about Jesus to a lost world is not the only evidence of a person who has the Holy Spirit that lives within them. There are a number of different evidences that the scriptures give, but this text gives us one specific evidence that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's not only speaking the gospel to lost people, it's also in loving the church. And when I say loving the church, I don't mean that you're loving a brand, that you love Mercy Hill and the logo and the color scheme. That's not what I mean. I don't mean that you love a building. I don't mean that you love a particular church and what they kind of do for you, what programs they provide. It's kind of like a consumeristic type mentality. It's not what I mean. When I talk about Those who are spirit-filled love the church. I mean that they love the people in the church. They love God's people. That is evidence that a person has truly been born again. You know, maybe there has been times that that you've you've heard people say things to the effect of, you know what, Uh, I believe in Jesus, I just don't really believe in the church. Or I love Jesus, but I have no love for the church at all. And, And for you, if you're a true believer, you know when somebody says that, that just... There's something off with that. You know that that, with that statement, there's something just not right. And especially when we consider the words of Jesus, when Jesus himself said that love for one another, that is love of the church, would be one of the primary definitive marks whereby a lost world would know that we are actually followers of Jesus Christ. They will know that we are Christians by our love one for another. That's loving of the church. So you can't have one with the other. Both of them go hand in hand. So sure of this truth was the Apostle John that in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, he said, he said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He says, there's no way for you to be able to say you love Jesus and not love God's people. It just is impossible. And so what we know is we know that loving God or loving God in loving the church, loving the church is evidence that, again, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The question is, how do we know whether we love one another? How do we show that love? How is the love that we're supposed to have for each other? How is it evidence in what we do and, and, and how we carry ourselves within the four walls of this church and even beyond? Well, that's what we want to look at this morning. Two things this morning before we take of the Lord's Supper. Number one, our love for one another is evident in our generous attitude. Our love for one another is, is evident in our generous attitude. Look at the attitude in verse 32. The Bible there says, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
Now, now this, 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 somebody's alarm's going off. I don't know whose that is, but who's that? it's probably mine. But anyway, uh, anyway, I know everybody was looking, so we might as well just go attend to what that is. There's somebody else's. I'm just <laughs> making sure. I think that's just somebody's phone. No big deal. We're just preaching the word here. So, um, so, so the idea, the concept, where am I? That's it. I'm starting from the beginning. The Christians in the book of, no, I'm just kidding. This, this loving spirit that they had, this generous attitude that they had here in chapter 4, we saw the same exact generous attitude. Luke wrote about it in, in chapter 2 as well. So it should sound familiar to us. There in 2.44, he said, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So now historically, let me explain. Historically, there are some that have looked at these two chapters, and what they've said is that when you look at it, it must be that the early church was founded on some basic elementary form of Marxism um, or, or, or socialism. And so they look at it, and then some then push it even further. In other words, socialism, meaning that uh, now with the church and the, with the introduction of the New Testament, the practice of the early church was to renounce any personal ownership of anything and replace it with some form of communal ownership. So no longer would the church say, this is mine. They would now say, this is ours. And then they, some push it even further and say, not only that, not only did they not own anything themselves, but it's actually evil to be able to do so. It's actually inherently evil to own anything for yourself. The question is, is that actually what the Bible is teaching? I don't think so. Let me tackle both of those for a minute. Was this some type, some level or form of socialism? The context would suggest not. In chapter five, which we'll look back at in a week or, or two, what we'll look at there is that there was a man and a woman by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, and they had a piece of land. Here in this text, there was a man by the name of Barnabas, had a piece of land, sold it, gave all the proceeds to the, to the disciples, apostles, to be able to disperse to those who were needy in, in, in the church. And so these people are going to do the same exact thing. The difference is they withhold some of the money for themselves. They withhold some of it. Now, that's not the problem. The problem is not that they withhold themselves. The problem is, is that they lied in telling Peter, hey, listen, we sold for such and such amount and we gave the whole sum when in fact they did not give the whole sum. And Peter, being led by the Holy Spirit, realizes that this is a lie And so he addresses them on it, and he makes sure that they're clear. In chapter 5, verse 4, he says, While it remained, talking about the house unsold, did it not remain your own? Did it not remain your own? In other words, he goes, that house was always yours. It's nobody else's, demonstrating that in the early church, they they possessed things. It was still their own. And the next sentence, he says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, even the money that you had after you were sold, it was for you to use at your disposal, however you determined it. Why? Because it's yours. So there is no like, the immediate kind of like socialism that's going on here. It was just a group of people who owned stuff, but were incredibly generous to be able to meet the needs around them. So now the second question is, is it inherently evil for us to own stuff, right? There's, there's the question, is it inherently evil? Let me, let me answer that both biblically and theologically. Biblically, what does the Bible clearly say? Well, there's no scripture that says, thou shalt not own stuff, all right? I've looked, and even in the Greek, it doesn't say that. But we do look to the Ten Commandments, right? We look to the Decalogue, and, and there are two specific commandments that help us. One is, thou shalt not steal, and the other is, thou shalt not covet. Now, what do those commands assume? They assume that somebody owns something 
because you can't steal something that doesn't own that somebody doesn't of it. You can't you can't covet something that your 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 neighbor has that's not his own. So the assumption of those commands is that people are going to own something. So it can't be inherently evil, but Let's take one more step. It's not only that it's not inherently evil. It's not even inherently neutral to own stuff. It's actually inherently good, inherently good. God designed your possession of things as good. Now, before you get excited, bump your spouse and go, the boat we're getting this afternoon. Before you begin to do that, just listen to the rest of this, all right? And so how do we know this? Well, Genesis 1, 26, let me just read the scriptures there. God is talking about how he's gonna make man in his image and, uh, and that he was going to have them to be dominion over all the earth. And he, and he says to men, he creates them, and he says he mailed them, he, he made them, mailed them, he made them male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, you probably have, you might have that book, some of you probably do. In his Systematic Theology and in a book, a great book called Business for the glory of God, he contends that the idea of having dominion of the earth must include us owning some portion of the earth, that somehow we take possession of those things. Here's what he writes. He says, the ownership of possessions is a fundamental way that we imitate God's sovereignty over the universe by our exercising sovereignty over a tiny portion of the universe with the things that we own. And, and if you completely blanked out there, let me go ahead and explain. What, what he's, what he's, some of you are like, Aah. all right, that gave it away that you didn't know what he just said. So what he's saying is this. He's saying, hey, listen, when God is sovereign over the whole earth, would you agree? He made it, which means he's boss. He could, that's what sovereign means. He's boss, he can do whatever he wants with it. But he works it and he tends it and he, he pays attention to it in a particular way that is consistent with who he is, his character. And so what he does is he's created you and I in the, care, in the image of God. Would you agree? Say yes. In the image of God, which means that when we glorify God is when we're acting like God, when we're doing things like God that, that, that demonstrate what he's all about. So here's what, he's do, what he does. As he's sovereign over all and he works the whole earth for his glory, he says, I'm gonna give you a little piece of this earth for you to possess, for you to take dominion over it, work it, overlook it in a way that will demonstrate who I am and mimic who I ultimately am for my glory. Do you see that? See, this makes all the difference in the world. When your daughter or son comes up to you now and basically tells you, hey, listen, um, I'm tired of being in the same room with these five knuckleheads, you know, my brother, my other sisters, and I would really like that whole, that closet down the thing. I want my, I would love to have my own room at this point. Okay, now here, here's, what, here's what happens. At first we looked at, and there's a part of you going, you ungrateful little thing. When I was your age, I slept in a whatever, right? We had a tent. We didn't even have four walls, right? And so we begin to kind of, we, we, we had three, and we were happy to have three because our neighbors had one. And so we, we begin to do that, and we begin to talk about those things. But the truth of the matter is, it could very well be selfishness that's got her asking that question or has the, asking him that question. But you need to understand, it might very well be God in a desire that God himself has placed in her heart to own a portion of his creation and have dominion over that creation because she wants to take it, she wants to organize it, she wants to, to work it in a way that she can tend things in a similar way in which God would ultimately do it. Now, we're gonna have a lot of discussions after this for how many young ladies I see uh, here in the congregation, but you get that. 
This is what God does. So it's not inherently wrong in any, uh, in any way, shape, or form. But we also have to understand, and I think that we all do, that with this incredible blessing of God giving us stuff also comes a tremendous responsibility and a lot of potential to sin in many different ways. Would we agree with that? With this stuff in which he's given us? There's always the danger of the sin of idolatry whereby we begin to love the stuff and the gifts more than we love the giver. There's always the danger of you and I becoming ungrateful and being discontented with the things that God has given us, always wanting more, never content, always trying to think of how you can upsize or get something better. And the reason that this is sin is because in ultimately what it means is that when we complain about these things, we're in essence complaining about God, God who promises to be a good God, a benevolent God, a gracious God, a giving God, that he is a God that does not know how to take care of his own. And that is sin for you and I. There's also the sins, of course, of hoarding our possessions to be able to just getting them. You know, I know people who hoard so much stuff, but they never use it and they'll never loan it out. Have you ever known somebody like this? You might be one right now, might be talking about. I know a guy that has a trailer that, uh, oh, this was some time back, nobody that you know, all right? So don't, don't look at it, don't point at each other. But he's got a trailer and I just needed a trailer. I, I guess I didn't know the the appropriate, I didn't know there were laws, you know, of, of how you're supposed to, or who, anyway, I just didn't know. I just thought, hey, there's a trailer. Hey, do you mind if I borrow it for a minute? And he's like, no, I'd rather you not borrow it. I'm like, that, that trailer? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, what? I'm afraid, I'm afraid something will happen to it. And I go, you do know it's rusting, right? Over on the side, right? And literally our, our desire of our heart, sometimes we love ourselves so much that we don't even want to give it out to loan it to let somebody use because we, in, in fact, we'd rather see it rot than it be used by somebody else. That means that we are having a hoarding type of heart that is clearly unhealthy when we're holding things too tightly. And so what we find here in the phrase, I think the key phrase here is this, that this early church, this was not the case for them. They understood that God had entrusted them to use what God had given them for the glory of God and for the benefit of those who were around them. And so we see that, we see the key phrase when he says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. It's about what they said. Attitude is shown a lot in the way that they say, right? Kid comes back and goes, oh yeah, your mama. Okay, that's, an, an, that's a child that's in trouble, right? At that point, what are you saying? It says, I don't like your attitude because the voice and the speech reflects the attitude. And so here, what they're saying is we own these things, but we don't hold and cling so tightly to these things that, that we're not willing to be able to freely give them away for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so that's the spirit. And listen, the reason that we know that the Holy Spirit dwells within them to be able to allow them to do that is because without the Holy Spirit, you can't do this. You can't have this kind of generosity. Why? Because within our sin nature, we are extremely selfish human beings. Would you agree with that? If not, look, if you have little kids, you see this all the time. Now, this is true. There is some, some age, and I don't know exactly. I guess I need to have a couple more kids to, to realize this, but uh, you'd think I'd figure it out by now. But when they're really young, there's this real sweetness about them. Have you noticed that? Just kind of sweet, just kind of, you know, and they want to share everything. Sometimes that's not a good thing. Like when they, when they grab like a handful of Cheerios and it's like sogging wet and they've been sucking on it and half of them is kind of like stuck to their face. Has nobody had their kids eat Cheerios, right? Is, it, is this a problem for my house, right? And so, so they would have them and they, they eat these things and then they come up and what do they do? They, they hand them and they want you to eat the soggy Cheerios, yes? Now, I don't want you to be too incredibly grossed out. Adelaide, close your ears. This will gross you out. But my, my wife, she'll take the Cheerios. 
She'll, she'll eat it, and she goes, well, that's just sugar. That's my baby. I can't deny my baby. Me? I deny. <laughs> but I deny in a completely different way, right? I don't make it obvious. I deceive my child. I kid, and I take it, I'm mm, so good. Oh, so good. Mm, thank you, baby. You're so sweet. And we praise them for their giving of that. And then somehow when they begin to speak, you know, maybe around two years old, all of a sudden they begin to learn to speak and they learn two words, my and mine. And it's a, it's a nightmare, right? All of a sudden you give him something and a little kid comes over, you know, the pastor's kid comes over and you're sitting there and he goes, oh yeah, play with little Jimmy. And I don't, I don't have a son named Jimmy, but anyway, play, play with tall Caden. And, and, uh, and he comes over to play and he goes, no, he goes, he goes and, and the child begins to go, no, mine. Mine, mine. And you just cringe as an adult, don't you? You just sit back and go, no, 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 no. It's yours, but we share. We share. What is that child demonstrating? That child's demonstrating that within our sin nature, we don't want to share, we don't want to give, we want to hoard. We want to keep to ourselves. But when the Holy Spirit comes and changes us from the inside, that which we were never willing to let go, we now are able to let go through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So the first thing that we see is our love for one another is evidence in our attitude towards one another, but it's also evident through our generous action through our generous action. Look at verse 34. It says, there was not a needy person among them for as many, note this, for as many as were landowners or owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Listen to this, a true attitude of generosity, a true, authentic, real attitude of generosity will always lead to actions of generosity will always lead to actions of generosity. What good is it to have an attitude of generosity, of wanting to be able to help everybody and the needs around you without actually doing it? Well, James answers that very question in James chapter 2 and verse 15, when it says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The answer is no good doesn't do anybody good if you sit around and you sound like the most giving person in the world, but don't actually give. It's, let me give you an example of that. It would be similar to maybe you've heard somebody say this on occasion. If, if somebody said on occasion, they, if, and I don't know why this happens, but Christians, I find myself talking with Christians, and I guess when we're bored, we begin to talk about what would you do if you won the lottery. Have you ever played that game? Why do we even do that, right? And it's funny, none of us play the lottery, but we're like, if you won the lottery, what would you do? Well, I think it would be rather strange because I don't play it. And so what would you do? And one person in the group is like, man, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay my debt off right now. I'll go hunting for the next year. And I'll tell my boss what's up, you know, that kind of thing. We're like, oh, brother, that's not really godly, but I'd probably want to do the same thing too. And so, so and then the next person gets up and I'd buy this. And then there's always a spiritual one in the group, right? There's always a spiritual one. Well, if I were to get all of that, I would just give it to the poor. There would be no homeless people in Nassau County. I would save every dog. I'd spade and neuter every dog for free. And, and there would be no helpless puppies. And so they talk about all this stuff that they would end up doing. And the reality is, I wonder sometimes when people speak that way, if you were to look at their checkbook, if you would really see any evidence of that kind of benevolence and graciousness at all. See, it's really easy to be able to get up and sound really gracious to be able to talk about how much you would give from a pot of money that you don't even own. In fact, what I would say is this, is that being generous is not being willing to give money that you don't have. Generosity is giving from what you do have. 
Another way to say it is you are far more generous by giving from what little you do have than by being willing to give gobs of money that you do not possess. That's where the true thing is. So the idea is, is that this group of Christians, they had generous attitudes towards others, willing to be able to give, but they actually did it sacrificially in order to be able to meet the needs that were ultimately around them. A few things I want to answer because I think at this point we begin to have a lot of questions. So let me try to define this and give us a little bit of scope and maybe answer some of the questions uh, that you have. Because at this point, you're just all ready to sell your homes. And so before we do all of that, let's kind of work through this just a little bit. Number one, this giving was voluntary. It was voluntary. It wasn't being forced by anybody. They didn't go back in the church and go, hey, man, you're, you're going to have to give this. You're going to have to give this. None of it. It was all voluntary. It wasn't forced, which means that it, neither was it coerced through threat or promise. Now, let me explain what that means. Is sometimes, and I've been in churches like this, I've done this and I've repented of it, but there are churches that sometimes if the, if the giving is not going right, the pastor can begin to go, you know what? We really need to stick it to the people. We're going to Malachi chapter three, baby. Will a man rob God? Yeah, you've robbed me. Some of y'all in big trouble, right? And you begin to preach that. Now, listen, that is in the word of God and we need to preach that. And it is a sobering reminder that everything is God and we need to be obedient and we need to, there's consequence for sin. We get all that. But these people were not motivated by that type of fear of God. They weren't motivated because they thought, hey man, if you don't give, your leg's gonna fall off. You know, people give around testimonies. Man, I, I just stopped giving, and all of a sudden, man, my head literally fell off. They had to sew it back on, right? And so everybody's like, I don't want my head to fall off here. We begin to give. So it's not coerced through, through, through some kind of threat, but it's also through not some kind of promise. And I think that this is what we see in the church more than ever, is people promising stuff that really the Bible itself doesn't really promise when you really appropriate look at the text of Scripture, so people will get up and they'll just say, hey, bro, you just got to step on faith. You just got to give that money. You give that money, bro, it's going to be coming back in heaps and groves. You're going to have to build, you're going to have to get a bigger bank account. I don't know if that's actually possible, but you're going to have to get a bigger bank account because it's coming back, bro. It's coming back. Does God often be very, is he gracious with us all? Yes. There are many times that we've given and we've seen God work in supernatural ways and be able to do that. Absolutely. All of us have seen that. Amen. We've seen that. But on the other side, there's times that you give your tithe and the immediate time that you, you, you walk away, you find out that your whole house fell apart, right? It, 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 there's no promise there. I remember uh, hearing a friend one time talking about giving and, and, uh, and, uh, and he was just talking about the idea that he, when he wasn't a pastor, he heard a preacher tell him, he said, man, if you give, God will give back, press down, shaken together and running over. And he was so fired up about that. Again, we have to at scripture, we just have to make sure it's in the right context. And so what happens is the very, he goes, and, and I gave, I just step out in faith. The very next day on the way to work, he goes, I totaled my car. And I was looking at my car and it was all crumpled up and everything. And he goes, and there was, and he goes, and I remember that the radiator just kept spewing stuff out. And I kept thinking of that scripture, pressed down, shaken together and running over. That's my car. That's what I got after giving. And sometimes that's it. So the idea is this, is that if it's going to be a giving church, it's not going to be because of a threat. That God doesn't love you because you're not giving. He loves you. That's why he's blessed you so much. The giving is just an overflow of what he's already done. And it's not for us to be able to give in order for us to be able to make sure that we're going to get something, all for God to be able to provide for our idolatrous materialistic hearts. We simply give because we have been given to. That, that's a part of it. There is a, it's voluntary. We want to be able to do it. Number two, it's, it's occasional. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul, Paul, Paul commanded, he said, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So in the early part of the church, already the church was practicing this tithes and offerings and giving on a regular basis, on kind of a weekly basis, monthly basis. He was talking about a week, but it was consistent. And the whole purpose, as Paul points out, is so that there would be enough for the ministry to be done and the people within the church who are in need to be able to be cared of. He goes, you make sure that you give faithfully, and when I come, I'm not going to have to take up a special offering, is what he says. But that's not what's happening here in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, this is not something that is happening all the time. This is something occasionally happening. This is something where the needs are so big that the regular giving of the people is not ultimately going to be able to satisfy that need. So what they do is they make an extra effort of sacrifice, and they give sacrificially to be able to make and to be able to meet the needs within that church. So this is not every day. This is, this is something that we do occasionally as the need arises. Third, this is discerning, verse 35. And it says, and it laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. As each had need. Now, what are they doing there? Why lay it at the apostles' feet? Well, let me say this. If, if God's leading you to be able to help somebody, I want to encourage you not to bring it to the pastors and the elders' feet, okay? Uh, what that means is just bring it to. If you're sitting there going, I see somebody in need, guess what? Go meet the need. You're being led by the Holy Spirit? Go meet the need, man. If you see somebody in your small group and you're like, man, God's, honey, God's really leading me to be able to help this folk, you go and do it. I don't need to know about it. Nobody else needs to know about it. You just go and do that. That's God honoring. So why bring it to the apostles' feet? Part of that is, is because of discernment. That sometimes people's desire to give outweighs their knowledge of the need in the church. I have some of you who have done that to me. Come up around Christmas. People come and go, hey, man, I don't know who to give to, but I'm just, I just want to give some money. Do you know somebody in need? And there's always a, yeah, I know somebody in need. Why? Because we're pastors and shepherds, and we meet with you, and we talk with you, and when there's needs, we know that those ultimate needs arise. So the idea is discernment, and you've got to have a lot of discernment in that, right? There's a lot of discernment of knowing like, what needs are the most pressing needs. Are you with me? Which needs are actually needs and which needs are actually wants? What, need, what, what is it that's being requested that may not even be a genuine need? Somebody might be wanting to take advantage of you with the church. Or, or how, about, how about somebody who is ultimately giving and then becoming dependent upon the church and they're just kind of, if you will, mooching off of those things? How do you how do? You, do? you need a great deal of discernment. But let me, let me say this. I see some of you nodding your heads, which means that you're with me. This is awesome. But you can be, be very careful to the other side of this thing. Because you could become so skeptical and you could begin to think yourself crazy that you begin to sit there and you never give because you're afraid that whoever you're going to give it to is going to use it in the wrong manner. I don't think that's what the passage of scripture is about anyway. I don't think it's for you and I to be less generous in our giving. I think it's for us to be more generous in our giving, yet the same time discerning of where that money and those finances are going. Are you with me? So there is a discernment. Next, it was purposeful. It was purposeful. The beginning of verse 34 says, there was not a needy person among them. Now, this is astounding. Not a needy person among them. Remember, there's over 5,000 people at this time. They're not even counting them anymore. 
And, and remember that in the church during that day, that only about 7% of those in Rome would have been wealthy. Everybody would have been else would have been impoverished. Those are the landowners. Those are the ones that own land, own properties. And so what's amazing is that none of the needy persons were, 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 were nobody was in need. That means that nobody who needed food needed... Everybody had food. Everybody had a place to stay. Everybody had clothing. That is astounding, that kind of generosity that was going on. Now, the question that we often have is, who are these people? Are they people within the church? What about the people outside of the church? What is the responsibility for you and I? Where's the primary responsibility? Well, Galatians, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, he, he teaches us and leads us in that. He says, so then, as we have opportunity... So then, as we have opportunity, let us, be, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, our priority are the people of God that you commune with, that, you require, that are a part of your church. That's God's people. That is a priority. It's no different than, than, than us saying, hey, look, man, you need to take care of your own in your home, right? Why take care of somebody else if you're not at least going to? In fact, the scriptures say if a man doesn't take care of his own home, that he's worse than an unbeliever, right? So what difference would it be for us? We need to make sure our priority is with the home. There's a responsibility there for that care. But there is also, he says, as you have opportunity, that is when there is more money, when there's an opportunity to be able to give, when there's enough funds, then you make sure that you're also helping those who are around you. So the primary responsibility is in the church. A broader sense of responsibility, not quite as tight and concrete, are those as we see in need around us as the Spirit leads. Make sense? Uh, you guys look so enthralled with this sermon. And so, so the early church, let me say this. this. This is why in Luke chapter 18, verse 29 through 30, such an interesting passage. He says, and he says, truly I say to you, there is no one, this is Jesus, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is what he says. He was talking to these same believers before he passed. He said, some of you are going to lose home. You're going to lose, you're going to lose parents. You're going to lose friends. And they're, they're, they're all going to abandon you all because of my name's sake. But I don't want one of you to think that you're going to get the raw end of the stick because you, whatever you lose here, you are going to get hundreds of times more than whatever it is that you gave up and sacrificed here. Now, I get the second part of that. The second part of that is in the world to come, eternal life, in the age to come. We get that. We taught that when we were little. When we get to heaven, we get a crown, we get, uh, you know, a crown and, and, and we get rewards for what we've done here. We understand that. But what we often overlook is a sentence right before that, which says not only in the age to come, but times more in, he says, received many times more in this time of where we're living. Now, what does that mean? Is that health, wealth, prosperity, gospel? No. What that means is when the church is doing what the church has been called to do, to care for each other and to look after each other and to love each other, when that person loses a, 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 a parent who write them off because now they're goofy because they follow this man, Jesus, and they've left their awful of her mind, they may lose one set of parents, but they gain hundreds of sets of parents. They, 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 may, they may lose their home 
But now there are hundreds of homes that believers are willing to be able to open and to be able to take people in. There may, they may lose their money and they may not have ways to be able to do certain things because of their following and their obedience of Jesus Christ. But yet in the home, they, they gain a whole lot more in a greater support system. And so this is a beautiful picture. So let me, let me just say this. So what was the purpose of all of this? What is the purpose of God giving us more than what you and I need? The purpose of it is seen right here, so that those who don't have enough will have what they need. God has given you and I more than what we need to be able to help those who do not have enough. That's what's happening within the passage of Scripture. So finally, we're to see this last thing, and it's motivated. We're to see that it was motivated. Nick, you can come at this time. Very quickly, in the most important phrase in the entire thing, look at verse 33. Here's where we get to the nuts and bolts of why they did what they did. Look at verse 33. Do I have verse 33 written on my forehead? Is it it back here? I don't know where it is. All right. I know I'm good looking, my wife says. But look into the word real quick. I want you to see this. Verse verse 33. Notice real quick. He says there, he says, and great, the last part of it, and great grace was upon them all. You want to know why they were able to give so freely? Because they so freely received. That's why they were able to give. I want to let you know that this gracious giving amongst God's people is not optional for believers. It is a must for believers. It identifies that we're in the faith of Jesus Christ. And how do we know that? Well, if you look at Luke chapter 18, in Luke, after, Luke chapter 18, we see the story of the rich young ruler. Do you remember this? Rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. He says, how may I have eternal life? Jesus says, hey, you know the law. You need to do the law. And he says, all these things I have done since I was a little, little boy. Jesus, knowing that he has done these things, but there is a whole part of idolatry within this guy's heart of materialism, tells him, you're right, but one thing you must do, sell everything you have and follow after me. Sell everything you have. Now, was Jesus saying, if you sell everything you have, you're going to earn your way to salvation? No. He was saying is, hey, I want to show you, you don't see your need for salvation. You don't see your need for me, but your need for me is that you love this stuff more than you ultimately love God, and that's going to ultimately be your downfall. And so the man could not let go. The Bible says that he went away and he was down and he was depressed because he, was, he, he didn't like what he ultimately heard. He wasn't willing to give those things up. The very next chapter in Luke chapter 19 is a story of Zacchaeus. And Luke does this brilliantly because in the next story is another rich man who has made his whole living by ripping people off and lying to them. He was hated because he was taking everybody's stuff. He comes face to face with the Savior and everything radically changes. As soon as he comes face to face with this stranger, he comes up and the man who was robbing the poor says, I will give a half of everything I have to the poor. Not because he was made to, it was voluntary. Why? Because when you come to the full knowledge of the gospel, when you come to the full knowledge of what you have now that you are in Jesus Christ, that through God and giving of his very son, that you are now being made right with God, that your sins have been satisfied, that they've been separated from you as far as the east is from the west, that there is therefore no condemnation on you, that you've been adopted as children of God, sons and daughters of God, that you now have this new family, that you have not only eternal life, but a life more abundantly. When we look that we are sons and heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus to God, when you have everything, it's not hard to let go of something. And that's what we see. That's the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. We love you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for today. And Lord, right before we take the Lord's Supper, we want to make sure that our hearts are right before you. 
We want to make sure that our sins are confessed up to date. You give us that warning in the word. But God, right now, I just in looking back, can we even pray amongst the body here this morning? Can we just begin to pray that we would have this attitude, that we would take this action to care for one another in the house of God? Would you give that to us? Would, you, we, would we repent of it? Would we repent where we need to repent, trust where we need to trust? God, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for being a part of such a gracious, giving church, loving church. But Lord, let us be even more so through the power.